Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome back to the Holiday Hidden History Happy Hour. Alex is decked out in his finest, but fortunately, I guess the temperature at your house is not making you miserable. Am I right? Ah, it's a perfectly reasonable temperature here. I've been out for some festive drinks with my team. Um, winter warmers uh, were on the agenda, uh, but in the, my home, it's perfectly warm. But thank you for checking. I, I love the, uh, the American idea that no British home is, is warm. <laughs> well, no, I'm just I'm doing a callback to what last time you were all yeah yeah and yeah. There was a million yeah. degrees in there. Yeah, but uh, I, I, uh, our viewers and listeners will find it hard to believe, but I actually have a job. So I was uh, I was dressed for my work. I am drinking today a uh, an amigo chardonnay. I'm drinking. Oh yes, uh, yeah, very nice. And I, and I like this, even though. Uh, the Falkland Islands, which they wrongly call Las Malvinas, um, has been a little issue between us. I like the motto on the bottom, back of this bottle, which is, at the end of the journey, we remember only one battle, the one we fought against ourselves, the original enemy, the one that defined us, El Enemigo. Well, cheers to that. Cheers. Now, I am having a vodka tonic. Uh, I, I did my deep dive research after we had our friend Willard on, and I learned that modern Stoli vodka that's sold in the West is not produced in Russia. It is produced uh. also not in Ukraine. It's produced apparently in Riga, Latvia. So I just started to, decided to stick with my Finlandia instead, just uh, support for our Finnish brothers joining NATO. Quite right, too. And before we tell our story, our first of two great stories uh, that are not depressing at all. They're very funny and um, sports-oriented uh, to one or another degree. I'm going to take a giant swig of this because, Alex, I have a confession I have to make to you, my friend. Oh, my goodness. You know how sometimes you're away from your loved ones and you know that you're about to see them in person, like I'm going to see you next week in person, and there's just certain things it's better to get in the air before you meet in person? I'm dreading what you're about to say, but yes. Well, Alex, I've been cheating on you, my friend. Yes, much like you cheat on me with GB News on a regular basis. I uh, have been enlisted to be a regular host on a project called the Maria Report, which is an amazing collection of volunteers who have been on the air on Twitter X 365, 24-7 since the day of the Russian invasion. And I'm going to be taking shifts as a co-host on that show. And I, I just thought it was better to tell you now before we see each other. Well, I respect that. And I buy that. Uh, I feel a little hurt, but uh, we'll iron it out uh, as we go along. And if people are uh, listening or watching, uh, one thing we could say uh, to make that uh, a little less painful for me is hit the like button and uh, subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts. Uh, we'd be grateful. And it helps us out a lot. Brian, yeah, when we, we have a great crossover audience now. So there'll be people from the interwebs, from uh, the X spaces that are tuning into our podcast for the first or second time. And speaking of that, I want to thank our friend James. I want to thank our friend Jeremy. I want to thank all of our fans 
because every single episode of season two is now well north of a thousand views with one pushing 3000 views. I'm sad to say I need another drink. Sorry. It's the one without you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sad to say that, but we'll catch up. We'll catch up. Yeah. I, 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 to, be, to be clear, that's just YouTube views. Most of our listeners are still joining us via Apple Podcast and uh, Apple and uh, Spotify and so forth. And we welcome you on audio. But if you're watching us on YouTube, um, my episode solo is the one that's dominating the airwaves. That is true. That is true for now. But, uh, you know, sometimes friendly competitions like this can get out of control. And Alex, I assume we're not going to have to resolve this the way the Lions did in your first story. No, that's correct. So I'm going to tell the story of the 99 call. And there's a lot of sports fans that uh, like this story. And actually, when I first told this story on Twitter, and then when it came out in the book, there were a lot of people who didn't like it being told. They thought it glorified violence, and that was not hmm. uh, the intent. But this is the story of the 99 call made uh, during the British and Irish Lions tour of South Africa in 1974. And the sport concerned for international listeners is rugby union, not rugby league, not American football, rugby union. And if you dislike sporting stories or uh, narratives of robust collective self-defense, then don't listen to this and indeed uh, write a stern letter of complaint to the NATO alliance about self-defense. Including um, Finland. Welcome. Indeed. The Lions team, in, which is uh, close to the heart of, of sports fans at my end uh, of the world, is a combined squad of England, Ireland, Wales and Scotland. And periodically, this hand-picked uh, group tours another rugby playing nation, normally in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, and in 1974, the run of play was decisively in the visiting team's favour, in the Lions' favour. Uh, but in the course of the tour, the Lions felt that repeated violent play against them by South African players uh, was not being properly penalised, neither during nor after games. And this had a different impact to the result that it might have had today. Uh, uh, we live in an environment, Brian, I know you're not a football fan, which you guys call soccer, um, where VAR uh, reigns supreme. But uh, the, the point is that in 1974, there were no video cameras for referees, nor for the spectators in the ground or at home to watch back and see foul play. Uh, touch judges, uh, which are uh, line judges, were just that. They were officials at the side of the pitch who could only say when the ball had gone into touch, that is to say, out of play, and they were not permitted in, in that era to point out infractions or fouls. That's the, the important thing to bear in mind. The referees for all of the matches of the Lions tour of South Africa in 74 were all homegrown South African referees. We might today say, how could that be justified? But that was how it was. And there were no substitutions allowed. This was not the kind of match where you, you, know, you come to 60 minutes in the game and half the players go off and another troop come on. There were no substitutions allowed unless a doctor declared a player unable to continue. So no touch judges, no replays, no substitutions. The Lions were getting 
battered by oh, the hold opposition. on for a second a que- question yeah, for our, question for our non-rugby fans how long is a match how long were these guys in there getting beat up 80 minutes oh my god and it's not like where you guys call timeout it's not there's no uh body armor there's no pads this is uh battering into battering man on man um it, it, it's a very hard sport they were getting battered with no real comeback available and it is fair to say i i think that the lions captain who was an Irish lock, or in England we would call sometimes we would say lock, sometimes we would say second row, same thing. Uh, the Irish lock or second row uh, was a guy called Willie John McBride. It's fair to say he was, by all accounts, a very nice guy off the pitch. When on the pitch, he was a man of a rather robust disposition. And up with this unpleasantness from the South Africans, he would not put. And therefore, uh, Willie John McBride instituted a policy. Uh, it was very complicated. One or one in, all in. If you heard 99 called, 99 called, you punched the nearest South African player to you. And, and, I, and I know that you have a different thing. In your country, it's 911. This was a shortening of the Irish and UK number for calling the police, which is 999. Very straightforward, uh, I, very straightforward plan. Even more straightforward than shouting 999, because I think dropping a digit just shows how efficient and direct this plan was, right? So uh, I think the, the Lions' logic was, whilst they can unfairly penalise one of us in the course of not properly, properly uh, refereeing, they can't send us all off. And perhaps uh, all of us whacking them might curtail this foul play. We'll get our retaliation in first, I think was the logic, lads. So the reason for this explanation is thus commenced the most amazing series of punch-ups in the history of world sports. The South Africans were hardly shrinking violets and they were ready for a physical style of play. For the second, so having been uh, wiped off the park in the first test, for the second test, they picked a number eight, which is the back of the scrum, uh, for a scrum half. Uh, and I know that these are, this is not a sporting uh, comparison that you will appreciate, Brian. But it's a bit like getting a tank commander in to do your embroidery. Um, but the sheer extent and intensity of the violence in the 1974 tour would have some younger listeners today uh, triggered to the point of therapy. So, for example... Um, during one ninety nine call, uh, a Lions player called Gordon Brown, and I want to make it clear that's not the former prime minister of my country, al- although in turn he too lost an eye uh, I- I- I playing rugby. One uh, Lions player, Gordon Brown, punched a Springbok called uh, Johan de Bruyne, and he knocked out in so doing his uh, glass eye, and the match was suspended. Uh, and in order to find uh, said glass eye, uh, and all glass eye, and all thirty players were down on their hands and knees, combing through the grass to find it. And once it was duly uh, restored to him, De Bruyne uh, wiped it on his shirt, pushed it back into his uh, eye socket, and was to be seen staring intently at Gordon Brown in the next lineout. With a bit of grass poking out uh, oh, from, his... out. No, from, from behind his, his his eye, 
I, the the beauty of these matches is that whilst the generalized violence is uh, recorded, I'm not sure there's a good close up of the grass poking out from behind the eye, but all of the players and they've you know they've gone on and many after dinner tour uh, chats and uh, and uh, speeches. Everyone describes this kind of intense glaring at somebody whilst you've got a bit of grass sticking out from behind your eye. And uh, one of the things I want to mention about this, whilst you might think it's binary, right? Uh, match kicks off, violence incurs, 99 call, hit the South African player next to you. You might think that instruction is clear, but in some passages of play, the nearest South African to you might be some way away on the pitch. And at one point, this is one of the most famous uh, moments in world rugby, and I want to introduce our American listeners to this. At one point in a game in Port Elizabeth, the Lions fullback, which is the person who stands at the back and is hopefully useful with his boot and is useful catching the ball. He was a very gifted player called JPR um, Williams, uh, one of the great golden side of, of Welsh rugby players. JPR was hanging back and he heard 99 called uh, and he was basically in a different postcode to the rest of the players. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense to you as an American. He was a different zip code, zip code. Uh, right? Code, a different yeah. zip code to the rest yeah. of the players uh, when 99 was called. And the footage of the game shows him well after the fight's finished. He's basically running a marathon to catch up with uh, the play. And he lamps a South African player, like who was not expecting uh, this to come. The first South African available just clocks him well after the exchange of handbags had been uh, completed. Uh, and of course, on the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast, we do not glorify violence. And uh, we emphasize the fact that Williams himself uh, later said that he was embarrassed about this uh, and that telling the story is, of course, not meant to uh, admire punching or uh, admire violence, uh, obviously. But there is a certain virtue. This is the point of the story. There is a certain virtue in standing up for yourself in the face of bullies. And there's a certain virtue in addressing an issue that the authorities concerned cannot or will not address for themselves and I uh, note as a mere uh, PS that the Lions won the series 3-0 a knockout lots to say about this but the question this is something I guess I didn't understand when I read the story how what over what period of time did all these matches take place were they going on for weeks or months or days or yeah so you play various warm-ups again and the warm-ups in South Africa can be incredibly intense uh, you might be playing the then Transvaal. I forget what the, it's now called, but uh, you might be playing um, really robust sides that give you a very hard time. And then you play a first test match. And sometimes you play another match in between. Another week you play the second one. Um, we've had, uh, the, the Lions have had some incredibly successful tours in this time. Jeremy Gus keeping a, kicking a drop goal is uh, to win a match is one of the things that sticks in mind for me well after this period. But the point is that generally speaking, the Southern Hemisphere, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand are regarded as the more successful rugby playing nations. Right. And they are regarded even with this combined lion side of the four Northern Hemisphere, traditional home nations uh, of the British Isles. Mm. The South Africa, the, the Southern Hemisphere sides are regarded as the stronger and more successful in this environment. And in 74, we had 
he said, with the beauty of hindsight, an unambiguously better, freer playing side. So the Saffers re sort of uh, resorted to violence and we won up them even on that. But what I'm getting at is this 9-9 directive went on for weeks and weeks, right? It wasn't just one or two matches. Correct. And, okay, that's um, the part I didn't get at first. Co co correct. And of course, people never watch sport for violence. No one ever watches wrestling in order to see somebody be hurt. That's that would be unimaginable. But um, I think it's fair to say that the viewing figures and the interest in these uh, tests went up as the Lions had uh, made sure public their interest in making the 99 call uh, their policy. So for all of our fans who are listening and not watching, I've, I don't know if Alex has noticed, but I made a few changes to my background for the holidays. I have my Christmas tree back there. I have my wreath back there. And my general color scheme is not accidental. This is blue, white, and yellow, which mm. fortunately happened to combine the colors of Israel and Ukraine. And uh, that is not an accident. This podcast has been a great friend of both. And as we record this uh, in uh, late November of 2023, both are doing exceptionally well, as this podcast has predicted uh, for the last year. Uh, I don't know if you saw, Alex, but uh, the Ukrainians have fully retaken Tokbok now. I hope I yep. said that correctly. And that is, as I recall, when these battles were being discussed a few months ago, that's viewed as a linchpin of their ability to retake the South. So that, that's, against that's all right. odds, much like this team, uh, they're standing up to the bullies. Absolutely right. And we wish them, uh, Slava Ukraini, we wish them the very best of luck. Uh, cheers. Uh, wish them the very best of luck. And I just want to add uh, two things. The first is I've spent a good amount of uh, time in uh, Ukraine, not of late for obvious reasons, but um, I've been I've quite profoundly uh, moved by uh, the time I've spent with uh, people from Ukraine of late. I, I talked with um, a team talking about their public relations and how they would uh, mount their next phase of activity from Ukraine. There was one guy in his 60s and a clutch of women. And the reason for that was that the guys on the team are all serving in the military and they work during the day and then they pick up a rifle and they fight at night. And I admire them so much. That was point one. And point two is slightly different. We've talked about Israel and we've talked about Ukraine. I just want to put a little marker down on the podcast because we often do throwbacks and we often think about things we've uh, talked about and people will often say, well, did you really predict this? And do you think this was right? Taiwan is a great liberal democratic country. It's a place I've spent a good amount of time in. And I hope that the Chinese don't do anything foolish because that great country uh, off their coast, and it is an independent country now for all intents and purposes. Yeah. That, that great country is ready and willing to defend itself. And there's lots of conversation in the geopolitical, geostrategic environment, lots of media saying, well, what might China do in this current environment to take advantage of the um, international situation? They would be foolish to uh, take a step against uh, Taiwan. Taiwan stands ready and the international Western community stands ready to help Taiwan were there to be anything, God forbid, uh, made against them. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And um, 
if if something like that happens, I will be adjusting my background to put the Taiwan colors in there. But what we need to hope is that the amazing strength and resilience of the Ukrainian people and the Israeli people and the durability and the strength of their commitment of our governments to them will deter the Chinese from making such a horrible mistake. But they're obviously watching. And, you know, in my country right now, there's a actually a pretty significant legislative fight going on <clears throat> about re-upping our support financially for those two countries, Israel and Ukraine. And I hope the adults in the room win. I'm quite confident they will. Um, but the, Russia and China and Iran are counting on their view of the West that we're just going to get tired and we're going to move on to other things and we're going to stop our support. And I see absolutely no evidence of that whatsoever, regardless of what the far left in our country is saying or the far right in our country. I think we're steadfast. Amen. Um, I think that's right. I would also just say this. One of the interesting things about the countries we're talking about, there's been lots of criticism of the democratic system in Ukraine, as if that's an excuse for Russia invading them, which I don't accept for a moment. There's been lots of criticism of the Israeli environment, as if that's an excuse for Hamas invading and, and butchering hundreds and hundreds of people. Taiwan is the clearest cut example that we have discussed in this uh, discussion. So I don't concede for a moment that Russia's activities, that Hamas's activities are legitimate. But Taiwan is the clearest example of a liberal democratic environment in which the government can lose an election to the opposition and they switch roles in their parliament with no shots fired and no complaints and everyone's happy and the government proceeds with its policies and maybe there's an election the next time and the government loses and the government on opposition switch again and <clears throat> th that's just how it is and the thing that's bothering the chinese people the most it's very interesting uh, a generation ago the debate in taiwan was held uh, between people who said um the, the debate the debate in between china and taiwan was chi taiwanese people saying we're the real china and Chinese on the mainland saying, we're the real China. And now in Taiwan, the new generation say, we're just Taiwanese. We don't have pretensions towards being the government of, of China. And ironically, that's what bothers the Chinese the most. Yeah, yeah. That, and I have to tell you, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say that, uh, ironically, the vehement position of the old Guomandang position that uh, the Taiwanese government was really the Chinese government in exile perversely supported the Chinese position because whilst they completely disagreed, the one thing they agreed on was that they were both Chinese. Yeah. And and the next generation of Taiwanese just don't feel that. They well, think and they're, there's, another, there's... they're another liberal democratic country. There, there's a direct parallel to that um, in Gaza. I, I, you'll recall, Alex, I took a great, uh, very eye-opening tour of the Holy Land last year, right around this time, obviously not repeating that this year. And we actually met with a number of, I would say, 20 to 30 Palestinian residents of Gaza, uh, not Jews, uh, not Israelis, residents of Gaza. And almost to a person, they said, one state, two state, call it what you want. We don't care. We want to live in prosperity. We want to live in freedom. We want to be able to elect our own government. And these, these wars that our grandparents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents fought, we don't care. 
We just want to be right. a grown up in a free state. That's it. Well, the trouble of, and I, I admire and respect the view that, that your interlocutor sets out, but the trouble is twofold. First, 20% uh, of Israel's population are Israeli Arabs. And those people have the best quality of life of any Arabs in the Middle East, Absolutely. unless you're royalty, right? They have the best, they are free, they're liberal. If they happen to be gay, if they happen to pursue it, if they're communists, right? They, they have a different view. They're, they're able to express and to take a, a position that's different to the regime. And the regime is tolerant of that. There is no regime outside of, of Israel, the only true democracy in the Middle East, that, that which that's the case. And the second reason that I despair about this situation is that the best quality of life for anyone in Gaza was to be able to cross the border and work for the day in Israel and then go back and take your shekels and take the money that you had earned through your labor and build a better life and build a home and build a better future for your family and Hamas's actions have stymied that uh, for anyone in Gaza now and the true tragedy of this is that if you were in Gaza and you just wanted a better life the biggest opportunity for you was to go and work in Israel and Hamas has shut that off from you yeah and um, not I, I horrible thing to contemplate but it's been reported with enough authority now I think I'm prepared to say it uh, it does appear that by no means all, I'm sure a small percentage, but some of those workers who came over from Gaza and worked in the kibbutzes and worked in the homes led Hamas to their targets. And that is appalling. And that means that Israel is, is so Never. unlikely now to, to allow people to, to, to come and work in no, uh, the last real, well, I say last, the only real liberal free democracy and proper economy in that environment. And they are surrounded by states that hate them. They're also surrounded by states that are that are propped up by uh, petro economies and uh, yeah. people turning a blind eye to the weirdest kind of uh, plutocratic regimes. And if I were Israel now, I wouldn't let those people in either. Yeah, it's it's. It's going to reshape the Middle East for better or for worse. I think actually there is a case to be made that it'll be for the better. But one thing's for sure, and that is Hamas's military capability will be destroyed and there will not be any uh, day workers crossing over for a very, very, very long time. And that, uh, that, that, That's right. But I just want to make one thing very clear for our listeners, which they already know and you already know. Israel's actions are against Hamas. Palestinians have been welcomed into Israel for the 17 years since the last uh, agreement. Now, whilst there hasn't been an election in Gaza because Hamas kicked out the uh, Palestinian Authority. And murdered uh, many of them. It, well, it, it, indeed, but even if one doesn't need to get intrude on private grief, um, one can note that they haven't, having got their own arrangements, uh, Hamas didn't uh, and Gaza didn't conduct any kind of elections, but it was a it's been a deliberate attempt to stamp out Hamas, which in my country is a prescribed terrorist organization. Here too, yeah, right. And my e even the BBC, my state-sanctioned broadcaster, struggles to say 
Hamas is a terrorist organization, uh, but they are. And I don't really quite understand why, given that it's the law in my country, the media failed to recognize the fact that they're terrorists. But Hamas, who are terrorists, invaded Israel. And what's happened as a consequence is as a result of what they've done. And Israel is well within its rights to seek to destroy the infrastructure of that organization. But of course, we all hope, and I bear in mind, uh, we're talking at a time that Henry Kissinger just, just died. Um, uh, Realpolitik is a thing, right? So we there's going to come a time when we need to have conversations with people on the other side uh, of, of debates. But you can't play chess with someone who insists on putting explosives in the pieces. You cannot negotiate and debate with Hamas. Debating with the Palestinians, debating with a legitimate democratic representative of, of Gaza or, or the West Bank, of course. Debating with Hamas, impossible. That's right. And uh, I don't know how good my mic is, but you might have heard my puppy Winston was agreeing with you a minute ago before I muted myself. Winston is a very sensible judge of geopolitics. Yes. And his his uncle Oliver is pretty good, too. But I, I did want to add uh, sort of connecting what you're saying and something we talked about a few minutes ago uh, about the podcast connecting our stories to real life and predicting what's going to happen and taking positions on things. Uh, our listeners, viewers may recall that um, on the day that the Baptist hospital in Gaza was not bombed, as it turns out, by the IDF and your network, the BBC, reported that it was. That's when I started getting dragged into these X Twitter spaces that now result in my new gig. And I said at the time, cheers, I said cheers. at the time that uh, this was almost certainly not an IDF strike. And if it was an IDF strike, it was not intentional. And uh, I only mention it today, partially to blow my own horn, but mainly to say that although we have a U.S. Congress person who's still has up on her website that it's an open question, Human Rights Watch, not the most unbiased of sources, has no. now come out with a report that, in fact, it was the uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad errant missile that hit the parking lot, not even the hospital, the parking lot of the hospital. So while every loss of innocent life is 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 a horrible tragedy, you know, it would be nice if the BBC would come clean on that. I don't know if they have or not. The Israelis, quite understandably, now have a satirical uh, repeated uh, kind of spoof program of BBC broadcasting explaining how uh, the BBC uh, is so off beam uh, on this debate. And the example you choose is exactly the right one because the, the reporting of this hospital situation and it, now it feels like ancient history because we all know it was untrue. Yeah. It was reported as fact. Oh, yeah. It was reported as fact. And I, I cannot believe that a prescribed terrorist organization's accusations are um, on uh, my national broadcaster's uh, airwaves uh, repeated as if they are gospel truth. And it can only demonstrate... so. There's no reason for you to understand this, but we have this weird thing in the UK called the license fee. Yeah. 
which is that if as long as you want to receive any kind of um, broadcasting at all in the UK, you're obliged at penalty of imprisonment to uh, pay uh, the state at the money uh, concern goes to a pot. Some of it goes to Channel 4 and so forth, but the vast majority of it goes to, to the BBC. Uh, you're obliged to pay for that, even if you never watch the BBC, even if you never watch Channel 4. And for decades, because inertia and we think we do things best has kind of plodded along in my country, that survived. I really think that the BBC's reporting on Israel and the BBC's reporting on the situation is just so bad that we're now likely to see a revisiting of that situation. And I cannot see the BBC's charter being renewed in its current form uh, in the next round. Uh, and well, by I the way, that, I wouldn't have renewed it last time before any of this stuff happened. I, I hope that's true. And by the time this podcast uh, is put out, I suspect the world is going to know a whole lot more about some other usual suspects in the propaganda wars like the uh, UN Refugee Agency, other parts of the United Nations, CARE in our country, Amnesty International. Uh, these folks are not neutral actors, everybody. At I have, all. I've seen a very interesting report this week about a uh, one of the Israeli captives being held in the home of a UN employee. And um, I'm not saying that's true, of course. I would like to see that uh, verified. But if that, um, that's the account of the uh, captive concern, yep. if, if that is the case, that is a damning indictment of the agency's concern. And the trouble is, at the risk of um, hammering home a nail that's already well home, we have run for a long time in the international media with the belief that these agencies are unambiguous sources of truth. This situation demonstrates it's quite uh, the contrary. Yeah, I don't know if the BBC has aired this image, but I've seen it, and it seems to be coming from reputable sources that they, they captured the vest of a Hamas terrorist, and on the vest was his literally his Hamas ID card and his UNRWA ID card. Now, you know, I haven't seen that in person. I haven't run it to ground, but it came from very reputable sources and the other side has not really tried to refute it. So I think we're going to learn a lot uh, in the next couple of weeks. I want to say one other thing about this and then we'll move on to our second great story. Um, and that is that I've said this so much all day long on other venues that I may have forgotten to say it here, but in case anyone's confused, uh, Alex and I are both lawyers. Alex is more recovered than I am. One of my specialties is the law of armed conflict. I practiced it in the White House, literally ruling on potential strikes on terrorist targets. And just to be clear for all of our uh, newer viewers or viewers who haven't uh, crossed over into this other realm uh, where I speak a lot, uh, one, the attack, the genocidal attack on October 7th was a war crime by Hamas. It was unprovoked aggression, regardless of what grievances they might have had going back to 1920 or you know 2600 BC, making up those dates. Uh, two, taking hostages, war crime. Murdering families with the unarmed in their homes, war crime. Taking the hostages out of where they live to where you want to keep them, war crime. Obviously, executing them in the tunnels, war crime, psychological torture. And to the earlier point, 
the deliberate stationing of weapons and command and control military leadership inside sensitive sites like schools and mosques and hospitals, all are war crimes, all have been proven. I have not seen a single bit of evidence yet, if it comes out, I'll talk about it, of any war crime on the other side. So I just want to put that marker down. Let me ask you one more thing about that. Uh, how about um, kidnapping parents with their children, then releasing the children, but not the parents? Yeah, family separation also can be a war crime. And also war I would crime argue, too, right? Yes. And also I would argue that's a form of torture, which in and of itself is a war crime. And we are supposed to regard Hamas as being this wonderful, lenient, kind regime because they let out. And, uh, there's a a network in the UK that said, oh, these people have, have treated the hostages well and let them go. How dare you say they're cruel? They kidnapped them in the first place. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, it's 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 bizarre that the conversation ever goes beyond that. But in that specific instance that you mentioned, and I promise people we didn't rehearse this, um, there's a video of a, a family of hostages waving and smiling at their Hamas captors as they're leaving. And for about 12 hours, the Hamas Moscow propaganda machine pushed this out as, hey, look how good we treat our hostages, which still would be a war crime. But then... Another angle of that same video comes out with audio that shows a Hamas masked terrorist pointing an automatic weapon at the car and telling them to smile and wave as they're being released. Oh, of course, that's appalling. But let me tell you one more thing. Do if, it. I, if I were being released and my father was still being held by the people who had taken me hostage, I would smile and wave in the hope they would treat my father better than they might otherwise do. Yeah, and that's and that, part of, and that and that's the situation concerned, right? And that's part of the point of the family separation. That's part of why they do it. They do it to torture the families. They also do it so they'll always have leverage. Right. And so uh, everyone listening to the podcast already understands this, but it's a basic point. Seize people fast, release them slow. That's the logic of Hamas. Yeah. And um, by the time this airs, I think we'll know a lot more. But uh, as of this day, it's not clear to me that Hamas has any more live hostages they can release. So, well, I... not least because they don't control everything that's going on in, right. in Gaza. And that's one thing, bizarrely, we've got to say in their quasi defense. They don't actually their their activities on the 710, as we would call it, uh, were more successful than they expected. More people followed them in. Other organizations seized people, but it's their problem. Well, and there's also reports, and I this is unconfirmed as of the day we're recording this. I suspect it may be confirmed by the time it, it, it goes public, but there are also reports that they sold hostages to other groups. Also a war crime, if it needs to be said. All right, enough about that. Let's uh let's go back to something happy, but I will say it is connected because right. We have a serious problem in our culture today, in my country, and I think yours too, of people who cannot disagree agreeably. And uh, I think your story reminds us that uh, those days are possible. So fire away. Well set up, not least because I think the ability to say to somebody, I um, disagree, and that's the end of it, 
has been lost. And I think that's in in the current TikTok generation where somebody's offended you and the result of that should be, well, you're offended. There it is. Um, seems to be lost. Um, we go back, I think, uh, to this point. Uh, paddleball. Uh, some people may still play this is a game with wooden rackets played on a court half the size of a uh, tennis court. And uh, I know that many people will think uh, that's padel, uh, which is now suddenly very fashionable. It's actually slightly different. The rackets uh, concerned might feel familiar if you see one. They do indeed have holes drilled through them to lessen air friction. Um, they're akin to the bats uh, issued for swing ball if uh, you've played that, which is the ball on a line on a pole game, which is the murderous cause of so much family disconsent on holiday over the, the decades. Anyway, paddle ball is a game played on a court half the size of the tennis court. And it is played in the gym of the uh, US House of Representatives, where it may or may not, depending on the sources you uh, believe in, have been invented. A man called Benjamin Rosenthal, who was a liberal Democrat congressman uh, for a New York district in the latter part of the 20th century. Um, uh, Rosenthal loved paddleball. And uh, the journalist uh, Daniel Rappaport asked him why. Rappaport, by the way, wrote a brilliant book about uh, uh, the lower house, which I commend to all listeners. Rappaport asked him why he loved this game. And uh, Rosenthal gave two answers, and I think both are revealing. First, the game is a nice opportunity to socialize and set up a potential legislative dialogue with people you normally don't deal with. And that was what you were getting at, Brian. That is a point redolent of the old Washington, the passing of which uh, many may lament. It was redolent of a time when those on different sides of politics socialized together in the capital rather than uh, belting back to their districts to shore up support and drum up ever more cash for elections, which I know is an imperative uh, for them now uh, as we record this, that midterms are coming. Uh, uh, there's, there's always midterms or generals. And if you're in the House of Representatives, you're always fundraising. Um, yeah, because uh, just to be clear, so our our lower house of representatives, they only serve two year terms. So they're literally running for re-election every two years. How did I just get balloons? on? I don't know. I don't know. If you're listening only, maybe because I said midterms and I was wrong, I was meaning general <laughs> elections. Uh, Brian had a whole set of balloons uh, come up in front of him. I did uh, not touch a, my my computer at all. I don't know what. I don't know what that is. Maybe we've We're been going to rock a roll with it. Maybe we've been hacked. But the point is, me members of our upper house, the Senate, but especially the House, they spend a huge part of every day and night just on the phone or online trying to raise money, which right. is part of the reason why it's so hard for us to get done. But go ahead. No, it's a, it's a useful point, not least because I said midterms when, of course, I meant uh, uh, not midterms because your, your president's going to be elected in uh, a year from year. now. Uh, yeah. But um, all, 
there's a whole separate debate we will have in perhaps an episode or two about uh, whether or not the United States could offer a better alternative for the world than uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. But um, the uh, presidency, uh, some of the Senate and uh, the House of Representatives will be up uh, in 2024. And Rappaport talks about the importance for the representatives, especially of being back in their district and fundraising and how much that undermines the ability to be in DC and networking and talking to people with whom you might otherwise disagree. And people will inevitably think, I want my person to be in my district and understanding my issues. But actually, what are the things they can really do that's best to represent people at a national level is understand the other side and be in the district to talk to the other person. It may sound like a very inside the beltway attitude, but to be there and to understand their perspective and the extent to which we are demanding that people go back to their district to beat the drum and raise money might be unhealthy. And it, it, look, it's easy to look through rose tinted spectacles, but I think it does genuinely seem that in the time we're talking about uh, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, that um, friendships were more easily forged as a result of people being in uh, D.C. Uh, as a result of their uh, presence there. And I think at the very least, it's a truism that it's generally harder to be rude to or about someone if you've met them. So I think um, it's a nice, to, to remind people, Rosenthal's first answer was, it's a nice opportunity to socialize and set up a dialogue with people you don't normally deal with. That's a, that's a very interesting response. But the second uh, answer uh, to why do you like this game, Paddleboard, uh, was this. I now have an inalienable right to play in a game. I have an inalienable right to play. And as a kid, I was always left out. And whilst the first answer, I forged uh, relationships across the partisan lines, is the more interesting political answer. This is the more interesting personal answer. One wonders, I think, how many politicians have felt like this down the ages, and not just about sports. How many social events are attended? How many political heights are scaled by men and women who still seek to prove to the ghosts of children of their forgotten playgrounds that they have now made it? I think these two points are both very interesting. Well, I don't know about you, but that's why I have a podcast, the second one. <laughs> I have a podcast because I like to dial in with you and have a drink from time to time. Well, you can have many motivations, but on well, a more serious note, you know, this is the, the, the on this podcast, we only tell obscure stories or obscure parts of stories people know. But the famous, most famous version of this story, of course, is the relationship that President Ronald Reagan had with then Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill, where they would go at it, hammer and tongs all day long, and then they would go to each other's offices and have a drink at night. And 
even in my day, to sound like grumpy old man from Saturday Night Live, even in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was much more civil than it is now. And we thought it was bad then. Right. So let me make an example uh, that our listeners might um, uh, find instructive on this uh, difference. I It was put to me at a... Uh, very senior group of people. I was by some by some way the most junior person. It was put to me uh, at a lunch recently, in which I was invited to give my views as someone who's quasi politically informed. Um, isn't the worst thing that X might win the next U.S. election? And uh, of course, the alternative in their view was that Y might win the next U.S. election. And I said, I'm sorry, I I think. There is a worse outcome than you've predicted, neither X or Y winning. And the worst outcome is that it goes litigious and a close result and is then handed over to the Supreme Court to be argued over in the course of months over how these votes and these uh, ballots worked out. And the reason that that's so bad, it seems to me as an outsider from your country, but I hope with an informed perspective, is that we're not even in the environment of Bush v. Gore. It's even more partisan than that. We are now in an environment where the tribes are so vastly apart that you can't even say we trust another arm of government to decide where we are. Yeah, it's really bad. And um, I'll look this up and we'll put it in the show notes. But Someone uh, once said the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince people he didn't exist. And That's in Devil's Advocate, the uh, Keanu Reeves movie. It is, which we both love, but I, I think there's it's, it's older than that, but it definitely is in the Devil's Advocate. Um, but my point is that without taking sides, we can do that later uh, when there are nominees. Um, there are tens of millions of people who have now been convinced in the United States that number one, litigation is an election strategy. Right. That whatever the outcome of the election is, I would say, unfortunately, if it's within eight points or you know, 60 or 70 electoral votes, uh, it's gonna be litigated no matter what happens. And the Supreme Court, even though they were viewed as being very pro-Trump, rejected all of those challenges in 2020 uh but who knows what might happen next time so that's that's once you've got an, a, a huge percentage of your population who just doesn't trust any institution or anything they see with their own eyes if they don't like the outcome that is a serious serious problem and i'm afraid that's where we are i i, I hear you and i'll say this um i've seen uh i know some of your Supreme Court uh, uh, justices. I've, I've talked with them. I think they are um, uh, well credentialed. I think much of the fuss uh, made around uh, appointments is uh, completely nonsensical. I could well see an envir uh, environment in which Donald Trump gets shellacked and a series of, and, and by the way, Donald Trump versus Biden, I would vote for Donald Trump. Not that I have a vote in your election, but I can see an environment in which Donald Trump is defeated handsomely. Well, well, well hold on. I got to call Citizenship and Immigration Services. Hold on. Yeah, thank you. I'm going, especially given that I'm coming into your country soon. Uh, 
I also want to want to be clear that I would like your country to produce better nominees than these two. But anyway, uh, if it's Trump versus Biden, I would vote for Donald Trump. But I can well see uh, a result in which Trump is handsomely defeated and then people litigate. Your Supreme Court is exceptionally, in my view, well-credentialed. People have been through the ringer much more than uh, any justices, not just in my lifetime, but possibly in human history. Yeah, that's right. And, and I trust and believe in those people to produce the outcomes that uh, we would think to be right, in the same way that you have described the court ruling against what people thought, given the the, the, the uh, presidents that nominated them in the past. And the sadness for me is that people in this process have lost their belief and trust yeah. in the judicial uh, process. Your, uh, and the bizarre thing is that yours, more than mine, where we don't elect our judges and we don't um, allow our uh, legislature to approve our judges, yours is the system in which people were meant to have the most trust in judges. Yeah. No, it's a mess. It's a mess. And, um, you know, my my fondest, dearest wish is that it, the 24 election doesn't result in significant violence in my country. But I I would not rule it out at this point. And wow. uh, I have a little safe next to me that uh, I recently purchased that has some stuff in there that might help me if that happens. I look, bear in mind, of course, I'm not American. And whilst your politics affects us more than anyone else's politics, um, I viewed these things through the lens of uh, international relations. And I thought that Donald Trump's uh, positioning vis-a-vis -vis free trade was good. I thought his positioning on North Korea was excellent. He shook, shook the needle uh, across that peace line more than any president in my lifetime. And I thought his positioning on spending in NATO was superb. He demanded that people spend more money in NATO. So uh, as an outsider, I liked those things. I thought his uh, attitude on the way out of his presidency was unforgivable. I thought it's disgraceful to uh, undermine a legitimate electoral process. Uh, he he did nothing so much as to, to, to disgrace his office as he did in the departing of it. And I thought that um, that was exceptionally sad. But if he is the uh, legitimate winner of the next election, that's one thing. On the other hand, we're now in a situation by which, because of the position that he took before, there will be millions of people, if he's defeated, who will not believe that oh, he yeah. was legitimately defeated. Tens of millions. A lot. Uh, enough to be very, very dangerous, in my view. And uh, look, I, I just say those things as an outsider, right? So uh, I want your country to be a friend of mine. I'm British. Uh, President Obama said that we would be at the back of the queue for a trade deal um, were we uh, to leave the European Union, which we did. Uh, President Trump said that we would be the first in line. Uh, very nice rhetoric. I can't help but notice we didn't have one. So, yeah. you, you know... I judge people both by their words and their actions. Um, <clears throat> but at the next election, I really, I would, I profoundly hope on behalf of all our listeners, you might have a better opportunity to demonstrate to the world America's uh, 
plurality and wisdom than to offer us Donald Trump and Joe Biden. We only have 370 million people to choose from. <laughs> uh, I, 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 uh, I try to normally keep my personal political views somewhat protected, but um, let's just say I have some more due diligence to do. And I don't live in a state where my vote matters all that much because it's a deep blue state. But um, I would just say for America and for the world, wouldn't it be nice if the first woman president of the United States was also a woman of color who also knows the game at the United Nations and well, knows what we're facing. Do I think that's likely? No, but that's where I'm probably going to put my money. No, I, I hear you. Um, interestingly, um, and I work at a business that looks at polling quite a lot. We have our own polling arm and so forth. What are the few people polling worse than the president in the US at the moment is the vice president. And I'm not talking about her. No, I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, and on the GOP side, Donald Trump is commanding somewhere between fifty-five to sixty-five percent of of GOP support. So it looks like it's going to be Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Yeah, it does. <clears throat> Although friend of the show uh, James Carville has been saying for three years that it will not be either one of those two. But uh, times are wasting. I, I, I fear he's going to be wrong. Time's a wasting for somebody to. I hope he's right. Look, as an outsider, I hope he's right, but he's going to well, be. I wrong. will say, I will say this. Uh, in one of the many hats I've worn over the years, I used to litigate classified information cases for the Central Intelligence Agency. And if a third of what's been publicly reported about the documents at Mar-a-Lago is true, and if you don't get a juror in the Trump trial in Mar-a-Lago that just will not convict on any grounds. Uh, there's a very good chance he's in an orange jumpsuit when the election happens, which would be a constitutional crisis, I guess. I, it's hard to even imagine what that would be like. But that's the one thing, one of those cases, whether it's that case or the Georgia case where he couldn't pardon himself, um, one of those, that is about the only thing I can think of other than a serious health issue, which, of course, we don't wish on anyone. No, of course. But I suppose the other, the other point is, for people who want to take this position, your nominee being arrested just reaffirms your view. Well, it definitely does with the 30 or 40 million hardcore people that are just not. I mean, he said it himself in 2016. I could murder someone on Fifth Avenue and my people would still be with me. And boy, has that proven to be right. Now, I'm not saying he murdered anyone, but there, his base is absolutely rock solid. And you're right. The more he is seen as in court and he can claim victimhood, the more those people are going to be solid. The question is, how much does that move the needle of other Republicans in primaries or more importantly, other independents and Democrats to come out on the other side? And I, we don't know the answer to that. I also think, you know, the, the president, President Biden, boy, if he was going to wake up and smell the coffee and say, maybe at 81, two, three, four, five, I should be home with my grandchildren. He better do it quick because it's very little time left for anybody else to come well, in if he leaves. I'll tell you two things. First of all, I'm not sure President Biden can spell coffee anymore. And <laughs> second of all, um, and I look at the polling quite closely, uh, 
there are few people less popular in your country than Joe Biden. One of them is the vice president. Well, I I would bet a significant amount. How about this? I'll bet you a case of our favorite whiskey that if Joe Biden is not the nominee, it ain't Kamala Harris. No uh, bet. Why would I possibly bet that? No, no bet. Of course, I, I, all our listeners will be witnesses to this. I'm absolutely not accepting that bet because it's obvious it ain't going to be Kamala Harris. That's the reason that Joe Biden is not stepping down. That is the reason that he's not going to be the Democratic nominee. In any normal political cycle, Joe Biden would have by now have stepped down and the vice president would have become the president and be the nominee. That's and, not happening because she's so unpopular. And Joe no Biden, bet. No bet. Okay, okay, fair. We did not make a bet. And also Joe Biden almost in so many words said that when he ran in 2020, that he was going to be a transitional one-term president. And I think you're right. I think the main explanation is he knows that Donald Trump would wipe the floor with her and he doesn't want he, that to happen to the country. And she is completely unelectable. Uh, and it's not to do with gender. It's not to do with race. It's to do with positioning, attitude. And the Democratic Party knows that more than any other organization in the world. And yeah. that's the reason why no one is suggesting she's seriously going to be the nominee. Yeah. And just to be clear, and I want to do a couple of quick things and we got to wrap up because we've been on an hour. But uh, just to be clear, I was talking about my current inclination to support Nikki Haley uh, uh, for the Republican nomination, even though I, I got it. I got it. Very long. Yeah. But, you know, some people were listening and maybe they didn't they weren't paying attention. So I just want to be clear about that. I want to just do a couple of cleanup things from your stories, though, which I loved. And I'm glad that in this time of darkness and turmoil, we can make people laugh a little bit. And they're great stories. Um, one, I just want to point out that pickleball is the current U.S. craze that's similar to what you're talking about with paddleball. And one and two, I believe I remember those exact paddles with those exact aerodynamics in my elementary school. Uh, when I got called to the principal's office, which would never happen today. But in Ohio in the 70s. I don't have any insight on that. <laughs> um, but, but I also want to just say, I'm going to open the your book, your great More Lessons from History, because I want to mention what I think is kind of be my favorite clause that you've ever written. And it's uh, in the 9-9 call, you read it a minute ago. Uh, it's when you say, when on it, he was a man of a rather robust disposition and up with the unpleasantness he would not put. Now, right. I love that phrasing, but I want to know, is that the kind of syntax you would use regularly or is that a special uh, case for this story? You are the first person ever to ask me, I'm, I hate to sound immodest, the book so well. Yeah. You are the first person ever to ask me about that. That is a deliberate echo of Churchill, who said, uh, to demonstrate the absurdity of language, up with this, I will not put. Yeah, that's what I thought. But uh, yeah. I'm glad I'm the first one that called it out. Thank you. Live, live on the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Yeah. So this has been great. Welcome uh, to the holidays, everybody. We'll have, will we have another episode before Christmas in the US? We might. We might have Possibly. another yeah. Happy holidays. And, and Alex, and I, I just want to say, because some people think that uh, holidays uh, uh, are, you can say Eid and you can say um, 
various people's holidays, but you can't say Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you, sir. I have my lame Christmas tree right back behind me. Our beautiful 12-footer is out in the other room. And uh, we around this, these parts, we start decorating the day after Thanksgiving in America. So we've been at it for a few days now. And uh, I look forward to seeing you next week. I will be bringing you some of the special Brian and Lisa's wedding bourbon that we had distilled for us. And uh, we will uh, we'll enjoy some camaraderie. And uh, Thank you. I can't time. bring it back to the UK, so we'll have to drink it. Well, the hard times. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers.